Chapter Twenty Three of Doors of the Night by Frank L. Packard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Three, The Rendezvous. It was night again in the underworld. Billy Kane slipped suddenly into the dark shadows of a doorway. Fifty yards ahead of him, up the poorly lighted, narrow, and miserable street, three men had paused on the sidewalk and were engaged in what was apparently an animated discussion. Billy Kane's eyes narrowed in a puzzled, perturbed, and yet grim way as he watched them. He had followed them for an hour now, from a saloon where he had found them to a disreputable pool room, and from there again to a saloon, and now here. He did not understand. It was one of those strange portals, so extraneous to the aim of clearing his name of the murder of David Ellsworth, and yet to so essentially a corollary of the rat's role that he played here in the underworld, at which he was knocking again. His lips curled in a queer smile. How long would it be before the end? And what would that end be? In his possession now, save for a portion of the rubies, perhaps half of them, was everything that the murderers of David Ellsworth had stolen from the old philanthropist's vault on that night which seemed now to belong to some past age and incarnation. He knew now that the man with the crutch was an actual murderer. But there he faced a blank wall. He had even fought with the man in the blackness of old Barloff's room last night, not knowing until too late who his assailant was, and the man had got away. His hand at his side clenched. It could not endure very long this impossible situation in which he found himself with that strange unknown woman who, believing him to be the Rat, held the threat of Sing Sing over his head. And there was the Rat himself, whose name and personality and home, such as it was, he had usurped during the latter's absence, an absence that might terminate at any moment. And there were the police who dragged the city and the country from end to end for Billy Kane. From any one of these three sources, swift as a lightning stroke, without an instant's warning, the end might come with that goal of life still unreached, and, greater than life, his honor still unreclaimed. And it seemed tonight somehow that his chances were bitterly small, that somehow the odds seemed to be growing and accumulating against him. He was on another errand now because he could not help himself. He was allowing precious moments that should have been devoted to the one chance he had, that of searching ceaselessly, pitilessly, remorselessly for the man with the crutch, to be directed into other channels, because he could not help himself. He stepped out from the shelter of the doorway and started forward again along the street. The three men had turned from the sidewalk and had disappeared inside a dingy, black, and tumble-down tenement. Billy Kane's lips tightened a little. It was a hard neighborhood nestling just off the Bowery, as hard almost as the three characters themselves who had just vanished from sight. There were a few pedestrians here on the side street, a few figures that skulked along in the semi-darkness rather than walked, but not many. And for the most part, though it was still early, not more than nine o'clock, the buildings that planked the street were dark and unlighted. Billy Kane jerked his slouch hat farther down over his eyes as he walked along. He did not understand. Two hours ago he had been sitting in the rat's den with Whitey Jack, 
who had ventured out of hiding again, safe now, since the interest of the police in Peters, the butler's murder, had become definitely centered in the man with the crutch, and someone had knocked at the door. Whitey Jack had answered the knock and had brought back the message that Bundy Morgan was wanted at the telephone in the little shop across the street. He, Billy Kane, in his role of the rat, alias the said Bundy Morgan, had perforce answered, and as he had picked up the receiver, he had instantly recognized the voice of the woman whom he knew by no other name than the one he himself had given her, the woman in black. He was subconsciously rehearsing the rather one-sided conversation now as he moved along. "'Is that you, Bundy?' she had asked. "'And do you know who is speaking?' "'Yes,' he had answered. "'Listen, then.' Her voice had been quiet, deliberate, and yet pregnant with a curiously sharp imperative command. "'Find Clarky Munn and Gypsy Joe at once, and shadow them tonight. Do not let them out of your sight, and see that you do not fail.' Do you understand? Yes, he had replied mechanically, but that was all. She had hung up the receiver at the other end of the line. He had heard of Clarky Munn and Gypsy Joe in the days when he had frequented the Badlands on old David Ellsworth's philanthropic missions, for the very simple reason that they were notorious and outstanding criminal characters, even in the heart and center of the worst crime and vice in the city. They were both lags, both men with prison records and marked by the police. Also, they were versatile. They had in turn been Apaches, gangsters, box workers, poke getters, and second-story sneaks, and they were credited with measuring human life purely as a commercial commodity, worth merely what they could get for it. He had heard of Clarky Munn and Gypsy Joe, who hadn't, but as to their lair or where they were to be found, he had not the slightest inkling. Whitey Jack, however, had solved that problem for him. He had sent Whitey Jack out to run them down, and Whitey had returned within an hour with the report that they were in a certain far-from-reputable saloon, and that they had been joined by the Cherub. He, Billy Kane, had never heard of the Cherub, but an adroit leading question or two had set Whitey Jack's glib tongue in motion. The cherub had proved a topic that had aroused an unbounded enthusiasm in Whitey Jack. "'They ain't got nothing on the cherub. None of em has,' Whitey Jack had asserted, switching his cigarette butt from one corner of his mouth to the other in order to permit of an admiring grin. "'He's the angel kid, he is. Just a think he spent his life handing around hymn books and leading the singing down at the mission joints. Only he don't. If he, if he got enough for it, he'd, he'd pull a gun and blow your bean off, and, and you wouldn't believe it was him even while he was doing it. He'd look that innocent. Believe me, Bundy, he's got em all skinned, and he ain't got no limit except the sky. Maybe someday the police will get wise, but they ain't fallen to the sweet little face of him with his baby eyes yet. <laughs> but ah, what's the use? You know him as well as I do. You'd think they'd just lifted him out of a dinky little cradle and soused him all over with Florida water. That's the cherub. <laughs> but the guy that knows him ducks his nut, that's all. Billy Kane shook his head in a sort of savage perplexity. He had dismissed Whitey Jack then, picked up Clarky Munn, Gypsy Joe, and the cherub, and had followed them here. He had come abreast of the tenement in which they had disappeared now 
and he looked quickly around him. There was no one on the street close enough to pay any particular attention to his movements, and there was no doorbell to ring, for in that locality the formality of entering a tenement where humans hived instead of lived, and where at all hours the occupants came and went as a matter of course, consisted in pushing the door open without further ceremony. His hand slipped into the side pocket of his coat, and his fingers closed in a reassuring touch upon his automatic. For what particular reason he was to watch Gypsy Joe and Clarky Munn, he was as much as ever in the dark. But one thing was clear. There was only one way to keep in touch with his quarry. He stepped from the sidewalk and, with well-simulated unconcern, pushed the tenement door open, entered, closed the door softly behind him, and stood there listening intently. The place was gloomy and dark and heavy with a musty, unsavory odor of garlic and rank, stale tobacco. But ahead of him, along what seemed like a narrow passage flanking the stairs, a faint glow of light struggled out into the blackness, as though from a partially open door, and from this direction a murmur of men's voices reached him. He moved stealthily forward for a few steps, and then halted abruptly, and pressed back against the wall. Yes, here were the men he sought. Insofar as locating them in the tenement was concerned, he was in luck. The hallway had widened out beyond the staircase, and from where he now stood, through a half-open door, a door that was in poverty-stricken and disreputable repair, whose panels, smashed and broken probably in some fracas of former days, was patched with strips of cardboard that, in turn, hanging by a tack or two, gaped blatantly, he could make out Clarky Munn's dark, scowling, unshaven features, as the man sat sprawled out on a chair in the center of the room. Also, Clarky Munn was swearing viciously. Well, where's Shaky Liz, huh? Where's Shaky Liz? Who's right now about coming back here? Her tongue's been hanging out for a drink now for two weeks, and she bust loose. That's what she done. Yeah, and she probably queered the whole leg, too. I told you so. I told you, you should have to show me about Shaky Liz before I go to limit. See, I ain't for any juice chair up the river, not yet, savvy? Oh, shut up. The words were clipped off. The voice was almost a boyish treble. Can your crooking? Clarky, you give me a pain. You came here because I said so, that's why. I had to steer clear of Shaky Liz while she put the stunt across, and we got to know now if the girl fell for it all right. Yes, growled Clarky Munn, and Shaky Liz has gone and got drunk and spilled the beans. I know her. If she has, heard the other, and there was something of finality made the more horrible by the boyish tones. She gets hers instead of the other, that's all. And anyways, youse have no kick coming. Youse and Gypsy here and me and Shaky Liz has all got a century apiece to start with. We can't lose, can we? Sure we can, complained Clarky Munn. We can lose the other two hundred that's coming when the job's done, can't we? Another voice spoke in a curiously meditative, raucous way. I never thought I'd be working for him. He handed me one once that I ain't forgot. But there ain't no one dares to touch him now. He's too big. You should get smeared off the map. He's got the coin, but he's no good anyway else. 
except that he's sharper in hell. Do you remember the roll he coughs up when he peels us them century notes that night? Well, say, I guess he packs that along with him all the time. Say, I wish we had him with the girl tonight. I guess we'd get our two hundred apiece all right, all right. Clarky Munn sat suddenly bolt upright in his chair, staring across the room, obviously at the last speaker. "'I'd be with you, Gypsy,' he said eagerly. "'Him and me don't belong in the same lodge, neither. You know, "'We're all right, we are, for dirty work. "'That's where we stand. "'But where do we ever get a look in where there's something juicy going? "'But you'd have to know he had the roll on him. "'You wouldn't get anywhere unless you did. "'I'd be with you, Gypsy. "'I wish something like that'd break loose.' "'He swung around in his chair. "'Hey, Cherub, you's give me a pain.' murmured the boyish voice. When yous gets a chance to get that guy, yous'll get a chance to hang your hat in a bathroom suite in the swellest joint in town, and use a limousine for a gape wagon, and wear spats and yellow gloves in summertime. Canned a wish stuff. Billy Kane, hugging close against the wall, moved silently farther on toward the rear of the hall, until he was beyond the radius of light from the doorway of the room. The street door had opened, and a footstep, hesitant, shuffling, was out there somewhere behind him. The step came nearer, and now he could make out a woman's form that, either in reality or as an illusion due to the uncertain light, seemed to sway a little unsteadily as she walked. Opposite the door she stood still, and now in the fuller light Billy Kane could see her quite distinctly. Obviously it was the woman they had referred to as Shaky Liz, an old, unkempt, hag-like creature, who blinked sore red-rimmed eyes in apparent astonishment and consequent indecision at the partially open door and the light from within. And then she stepped forward into the room, and the next moment the door closed with a slam behind her, and with the slam her voice rose in a curious gurgling cry that seemed to mingle terror and an unbridled fury. In an instant Billy Kane had retraced his steps and was crouching against the closed door. He could see now even better than before. The gaping strip of cardboard that did duty for the smashed panel, dislodged still further by the violent slam of the door, afforded him an almost unrestricted view of the interior. Clarky Munn had not moved from his chair, and a little way from him, legs swinging from a dilapidated, rickety table, Gypsy Joe, black-visaged and swarthy, sucked indifferently at a cigarette. But over in the far corner of the room, by the bed, the woman, her hat knocked to the floor, her tangled gray hair draggling about her eyes, was engaged in a violent struggle with a small boyish figure who had her by the throat and was shaking her head savagely back and forth. Billy Kane drew in his breath. He remembered Whitey Jack's description of the cherub in action, and it was literally true. The blue eyes were bland and round and seemed to smile. The young face was the face of a guileless youth in repose, and yet the boy, he couldn't be much more than a boy, was in a passion worthy of an incarnate fiend. "'Yous have been out hitting the can, have yous?' snarled the cherub. "'I'll teach yous. Yous think I spent two weeks hanging around this dirty hole of yours and standing for yous being me sick, disabled grandmother, with me supposing to be doing my best to keep bread in your mouth?' 
and playing poor and having to listen to her trying to get me jobs and handing me the soft goody-goody talk. Do you think I'm standing for that just to have yous go out and kick the stuffing out of the whole lay? I'll teach yous. It's a lie, screamed Shaky Liz. She shook herself suddenly free and with crooked fingers clawed like a wild cat at the cherub's face. I didn't grab no game. It's a lie. I got it all, all fixed up before I went out. I guess I got a right to a drink now, ain't I? The cherub warded off her attack with a vicious sweep of his fist. Yes, he snarled again. And suppose she'd seen us, or suppose she'd come back here by any chance and found a poor bedridden grandma gone out for a drink, huh? Blast you! Couldn't just wait a few hours more. The whole outfit'd be glad if you'd drunk yourself to death then. Shaky Liz dashed the hair out of her eyes and swept her hands in a half-angry, half-expostulating gesture toward the others. I didn't queer no game, she insisted truculently. I guess I know what I'm doing, and you ain't coming in here to pull no rough-house business either. Oh, let her alone and give her a chance to tell her story, drawled Gypsy Joe from the table. We ain't got all night to stay here. Sure, said the cherub softly and smiled beneficently as he sat down on the edge of the bed and calmly lighted a cigarette. Go on, Liz, spill it. The old hag stared at him for a moment in silence as she dug again at her disheveled locks. You jay little runt, she found her voice at last, and in spite of her scowl, there was a grudging note of admiration in her tones. You're pretty slick, ain't you? Sure, admitted the cherub imperturbably. If I wasn't, just wouldn't have a hundred dollars in your kick now and two hundred more coming tomorrow. If you ain't queered it for yourself, go on, give us the dope. Shaky Liz preened herself. She adjusted the threadbare bodice of her dress that seemed to bulge and sag uncomfortably, picked up her hat, and smirked at her audience. It's all right, she wagged her head secretively. Yes, don't any of you need to worry. When the cherub pipes me off this afternoon that the stunt is to be bold tonight, I sends for her as soon as he gets out of the way, and she comes on the run. She don't suspect nothing, cause with two weeks' acquaintance she can that interrupted the cherub politely. We all knows that for two weeks you and me had been getting acquainted with her and feeding her on jellies, and that I'm the errand child that's taking a shine to her, and that maybe can be influenced for good if she tried hard enough. What'd she say when she comes here this evening? What did she say? repeated Shaky Liz with a sudden and malicious grin. <laughs> she falls for it, of course. What expect? Me, I, I was lying there on the bed when she blows in. She asks me how I was, and I says, I ain't no worse than usual, but that it's me young grandson that's traveling me, and now I ain't got no one to tell it to except her, and how I don't know it, I durst tell even her. And, and then she says, I ought to know well enough that I can trust her, and, and that she won't, won't say nothing, and, and then I kiss her the spiel. 
I says I ain't slept all the last night thinking about it. I tells her it wouldn't do no good me talking to yous because I ain't got any influence with yous, and she has. And besides that, I was afraid of Gypsy and Clarkie if they got wise to me. And I tells her what a good boy yous are, too, Cherub, and how, though maybe yous might be better, it ain't all your fault, cause yous is easily led by bad company. But that yous have stood by your old grandmother, Savvy. The one bright spot in me life, said the cherub sweetly, is that my own grandmother is dead and don't know the raw deal I'm handing her. She looked just like yous, too. Not. Shaky Liz scowled. Yous close your face, she flung out. I tells her that me grandson had got pulled in by two of the toughest crooks in New York. Shaky Liz's scowl became a grin. That's yous, Clarky, and yous, Gypsy. I tells her who yous are, and that last night yous three was here. And that yous all thought I was asleep, but that I heard yous whispering together. And that Clarky and Gypsy was persuading me little boy to pull a trick down at Kegler's dock on the East River. Because they didn't dare do it themselves on account of the police being leery about them ever since they comes down from Sing Sing the last time. <laughs> I tells her how I hear you two crooks explaining that Kegler's got a bunch of coin in his safe to pay off some sand barges that he had expected yesterday, but uh, that they got held up down the sound, and that instead of taking the money back to the bank he was letting it rust in his box knowing that the barges would be along the day after tomorrow and that youth had the combination of the safe and the key to the front door and that there wouldn't be nobody around there and that uh, anyway nobody'd suspect me little lad and that he was to go down there alone at ten o'clock tonight and make the hall and then meet Clarky and Gypsy up down somewhere for the split. Gypsy Joe on the table circled his lips approvingly with the tip of his tongue. That's the stuff, Shaky, he commended. Don't use mind these guys. They ain't neither of them got nothing on yous. I'm for use, old gal. Shaky Liz grinned complacently. Me, I was, I was crying good and hard by this time. She said and grinned again. <laughs> she had a face that white she'd think she was going to pull the faint act. <laughs> I says I ain't slept all the last night trying to think what to do. And that's why I sent for her. And she asked me if I'm sure the boy was going to do it. And I says I am. And she asked me where he is. And I says I don't know. And that I don't know where to find him that he went out just before I sent for her, and that he says he won't be back till late tonight, and that's what makes me sure he's going to do it. <laughs> sure, I was crying good and hard then, Savvy. And, and I says, he's a good boy, and if I tells the police, that'll finish him. 
and I says I'm sick and I can't walk and can't go down there myself and that she's the only one I dare trust. And besides that, she's got a lot of influence with the boy and that I know she can persuade him not to fall for it and then nobody will know anything about it. And she says, yes, of course, I'll do anything, but where is he? Where can I find him? And I says, there's uh, ain't only one place I knows, and that's down to Kegler's, and that he'll be all alone there, and that if she gets there before 10 o'clock, she'll be in time to try and stop him. And she bends over me and pats me hands, and she does it, and she says, don't you worry, Mrs. Cox. She says, I'll go. <laughs> and I says, and just won't tell nobody nor take nobody down there so's nobody know about me little lad's disgrace. And she says, no, I'll go alone. And I'm sure I can promise you it'll be all right. And then she goes away. That's all. Shaky Liz was fumbling with the bodice of her dress again, and suddenly pulled out a black square-faced bottle. That's all, <laughs> she announced with a cackle, and I guess I got a right to this if I wants it, ain't I? Those can bet your life yous have, agreed Gypsy Joe with fervent heartiness, and reached for the bottle. In a flash the cherub was up from the bed and between them. Nix on that, Gypsy, he said sharply. Shaky's end is all right, I guess, but we ain't through yet. Nix on that, get me? He stepped closer to both Clarky Munn and Gypsy Joe. Now then, he said briskly, since we've finished with Shaky, we'll get down to tax, huh? Everybody makes sure they knows their own play, and we don't do no reneges. I goes down there and use two her trailing out of sight behind, and she buttonholes me, and I gets her inside without yous if I can. But anyway, we gets her inside without any noise, and the trap-door, where they shoots the sweepings from the warehouse into the water under the dock, does the trick. If there's enough weight on her, she'll be there forever. And there's one more thing. Nick's on the easy-fingered stuff with any safe business or anything loose lying around that looks like meat. Savvy? Tomorrow morning, the place looks like it did when they left it tonight. The girls disappeared, that's all. And there's nothing to show that Kegler's dock had anything to do with it. Get me? They'll never find her. And that's what's wanted. And why we're getting two hundred apiece more. Gypsy Joe removed the cigarette from his mouth, watched the blue spiral of smoke from its tip curl upward for a moment, and pursed his lips in a ruminative pucker. I wonder what the rat had in it for her for as hard as that, he said with a shrug of his shoulders. She must have... The rat? She? The girl they were talking about? The room suddenly seemed to swirl before Billy Kane's eyes, the figures inside to become but blurred jerky objects, and then it was black around him. Automatically he was stepping backward with a cat-like tread. Automatically he was feeling his way along the black hallway. And then the cool evening air fanned his face, and he was in the street. End of chapter 23